Magyanati Mirandasja, Gyananjana Salakaja, Csaksurun Militam Jena, Tasmais Rígura Venamaha, Sidantat Pálaszara Nityarasikam, Hamsam Vilasat Makam, Audariak Jesudama Seva Karadam, Vishramba Bhakti Pradam, Jácsna Juktivicsaksanam Tvagabido, Vajsista Sakjászara, Vandéham Tripurári Namakajatim, Sri Bhakti Vedantinam, Vancsakalpatarubjascsa, Kripa Sindubja Evacsa, Patitanam Pavanébjo, Vajsnavébjo, Namo Namaha. Namo Mahavaranyaya Krishna Premaya Krishna Chaitanya Namne Gauratvise Namaha. He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandhu Jagatpate Gopeshagopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute. Tapta Kanchana Gaurangi Radhe Vrindavaneshvari Vrishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye. Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Gadadhara Sivasani Gaura Bhakta Vrinda. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Nama, Hare Nama, Hare Nama, Eva Kevalan, Kalaunastieva, Nastieva, Nastieva, Gatiranyatam. Welcome everyone uh, to the third part of my series, When in Doubt, read chapter two, where I have proven and will continue to prove that the chapter two of the Gita has the solutions to all of life's problems. In last week's, week's section of, the, of chapter two, Krishna resolved two very big questions that everyone here in this world basically has to deal with. Who am I and what is the purpose of life? And the answers were a soul who will find happiness in serving Krishna. I also talked a bit about trying to see Krishna in everyone, regardless of how annoying those persons might be. Uh, after all, one of the main philosophical concepts in our tradition is the inconceivable oneness and difference of God and the living beings. So we're all tiny sparks of Krishna, similar in, quanti similar in quality, but different in quantity. And this is how we should really approach all living beings, trying to see them as little sparks of God, also one and different at the same time. Seeing people with love and respect, celebrating our differences and tolerating our differences at the same time, even when it's hard. Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur has written in his song Nadia Godrume, Krishna samsara koro char, krishna nama sarva dharma sara. Carry on your worldly duties, but in relation to Krishna, and give up sinful behavior. Show compassion to all fallen souls by loudly chanting the holy name of Krishna. This is the essence of all forms of religion. I think this verse uh, sums up really nicely and efficiently what I've been talking about in my previous two classes and also in today's class as well. So if you wanted to save some time, you could have just read that verse, but I'm happier here anyway. 
Last week, we ended the talk with verse 37, where Krishna once again urges Arjuna to put aside his fears and fight. This somehow speaks to me especially because growing up, I was extremely fearful of the future. But my experience has been that the more I learn about the philosophy of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and the more I manage to apply myself to the practice, the more I feel like the world is a friendly place inhabited by friendly beings. So slowly the fears are fading away. Even though my understanding of the, my realization of the path of bhakti is so uh, limited, I feel that, that, like I've mentioned many times before in these talks, even a small amount of uh, understanding will help. Last week, we also discussed the different ways of viewing the Leela. There was a question about seeing the Leela as the absolute truth or as an allegory or as a symbol. I've been thinking about this and I, I don't really remember hearing or reading that much about symbolism uh, in the Gita or seeing the Gita on a symbolical level, but that might just be me. So if you have any thoughts on that, feel free to share them at the end of the class. We do, of course, have Arjuna blowing in his conch shell, which is called Devadatta or God-given. And the uh, conch shell is said to symbolize purity and auspiciousness, being one of Lord Vishnu's weapons. And of course, very dear to all of us, uh, that sound that we hear every, every day at the ashrams in the beginning of the arti, uh, in the... Uh, the first rays of the sun rising above the horizon in Maduvan. And you hear that sound and the dogs join in howling. And it's, a, it's something that I'm very fond of. So that maybe we could say that, that reading about Arjun blowing in his conch shell, it, evokes all of these emotions. I don't know if that could be called a symbol or not, but that's just something that came to my mind. Uh, later on in chapter 15, we of course have the upside down tree, which with its roots growing upwards and its branches going downwards, symbolizing uh, life in the material world, world where priorities have been turned upside down. I've personally always been quite fond of thinking of the Kurukshetra war as an internal battle against our material attachments, being personified obviously uh, in the book by Arjun's uh, relatives, but the relatives kind of could be in my eyes seen as an extension of the body, being of the same flesh and blood. So we have the sort of the gross material attachments and the subtle attachments, uh, which create all kinds of fears. Uh, like I last mentioned last week, Gurmarsh has pointed out that fear arises from this kind of a misidentification with the body, from the idea that something that hurts the body could hurt us. And we could look at, the, at it on both levels, like hurting the gross body, mm or hurting the subtle body, like something hurting our pride or our ego. 
But when we see ourselves as souls, as units of consciousness that are just currently residing in a material body, we can take a step back, at least on a theoretical level again, and observe our material attachments through the lens of philosophy. Personally, one of my greatest attachments is this conviction that if I don't get things done, then they just won't get done at all. In other words, I'm what could be called a control freak. I get upset if things don't go the way I planned, uh, if they're not done the way I like them to be done. I like to collect a lot of responsibilities, which make me feel important, which leads to this vicious circle, of course, where others will rely on me taking care of everything because that's how it's always been. And I feel that nothing will get taken care of if I don't do it myself. Also being disrespectful towards others thinking that they're not capable of doing it. So in this section, when Krishna starts to speak to Arjun about working without attachment to results, it's always been hard for me to, to relate to, to grasp, since I've always been all about results. So let's go to, uh, to today's verses, starting with uh, verse 38. Considering pleasure and pain, gain and loss, victory and defeat to be equal, prepare yourself for battle without fear of incurring sin. I used to get almost upset reading this verse. Like what kind of a useless warrior would see victory and defeat as equal? And who would want to fight side by side with a person like that who went to battle kind of like, eh, we'll see how it goes. Like you want a warrior to, to want to win or who do you want to have a colleague like in an ordinary everyday workplace who didn't care about the results of their work. But I've actually gotten some insights into this uh, working as an artist and self-publishing our books together with Kamalaksha. Uh, we publish a book about uh, once in two years and uh, Naturally, we always wish that it would reach the biggest possible audience. So we are attached to the results. But what we have learned through, through this work is that the perceived success of a book is completely random. So regardless of how attached or unattached we are, uh, some of them, will just be more successful than others. We write all our books together, Kamalaksa designs them, I draw them. So they're not dramatically different from one another. We're kind of producing these fairly similar books year after year. But sometimes a jury at an art or design competition falls in love with one of the books and declares that it's the comic book of the year or whatever and we get awards and lots of media attention and that book sells out. And then some other time we're about to publish a book that we think is great. And there's a COVID pandemic and we have to cancel our release party and, and all our sales events and, and we're stuck with a mountain of books. It's not that that book was that much different from the previous one, but the conditions that we have no control over were completely different. So I've come to realize that we're not in control. No matter how hard we try, we can just do our best 
hope that the book will find readers or the readers will find the book sooner or later. So looking at this verse from this point of view, thinking about our own success and failure on a material level uh, helps me see, kind of at least see, how someone could be a good warrior, even if they considered gain and loss equal. I was also thinking of how last week I talked about Krishna giving Arjun permission or even encouraging him to kill and how that instruction could be misinterpreted and abused. Prabhupada brought out some points in his commentary, trying to make sure that people wouldn't think that, that you're just allowed to go out and kill others. But, but this verse is super important in how it shows that righteous killing actually means that the killer isn't acting out of anger or revenge. They're not getting a kick out of killing. They're just doing their job. So just like a police officer should be, should ideally be acting when they're arresting a criminal. Although sadly, we often see examples of misuse of power in those situations. But ideally, it should be a detached uh, type of a just doing my duty attitude. So in the following verse, uh, verse 39, uh, Krishna says, I have spoken to you of how to use wisdom in Sankhya. Now hear about wisdom in yoga. With this wisdom, Arjun, you will free yourself from the bondage resulting from karma. Gurmarj uh, clarifies in his commentary that the Gita will now start speaking about experiential spiritual life in practice. Beginning here and extending over the next four chapters, Krishna will explain uh, gradual steps on the ladder of yoga, from the yoga of selfless action, Nishkama Karma Yoga, to the yoga of knowledge, Gnan Yoga, to the yoga of meditation, Dhyana or Ashtanga Yoga, and culminating in the yoga of love, Bhakti Yoga. So here, Krishna will speak covertly about Bhakti and overtly about Nishkam Karma Yoga. Uh, telling Arjun that that's what he's eligible for at this point, that Arjun isn't eligible for pure bhakti yet. And Krishna takes Arjun through the, this ladder of yoga to, to illustrate that bhakti is the highest. Vishwana Chakravati Thakur has translated this verse slightly differently, bringing bhakti directly into his translation. I have taught you the discernment necessary for the process of yang. Now hear about the discernment necessary for the process of bhakti. By engaging your intelligence in this yoga, O son of Krita, you will become free from the bondage of karma. And uh, Vishwana Chakrati Thakur uh, points out in his commentary that Krishna now concludes the topic of yang, which we dealt with last week and moves on to bhakti yoga, which will enable us to give up samsara. It's good to note here that bhakti, of course, is the means and the goal. We don't practice bhakti just to attain uh, liberation from samsara, the cycle of birth and death. We practice bhakti for bhakti's sake. As someone, probably Guru Maharaj, I like to quote him a lot, as you've noticed, has said chanting will just give us more chanting. Now, I don't have a lot of taste for chanting right now. So when I 
think about this statement, I kind of get mixed feelings, like more chanting, like yikes. But I do recognize that there's a need for more chanting. And I've, I've seen the beneficial side effects of chanting in myself, like becoming more calm and content despite all the upsetting things happening in the world. This was especially clear in the beginning of the pandemic when people were really uh, derailed because of all the anxiety and, and uh, insecurity of the situation. And, and I felt like I was able to build a sort of a protective shield around myself, like with uh, engaging in as many devotional activities as possible. And of course, being uh, the more uh, positive effects come, the more positive impact I can have on my surroundings as well. I'll be able to help others uh, more if I have something to give them. And perhaps deeper realizations will come gradually uh, as I'll be able to invest more time in chanting, possibly. In verse 40, uh, Krishna continues, in the practice of this dharma, no effort is wasted, nor is one's progress ever diminished. Even the slightest practice of this discipline protects one from great danger. This must be one of the most wonderful verses of the Gita, especially for us beginners. Uh, in the stage of Anishta Bhajana Kriya, unsteady devotional practice, our practice goes up and down, up and down. We pick up our bow and get up to fight and we lose our courage and fall to the ground and we get up again and we fall again. And, but that's okay. I've, I've realized that I shouldn't blame myself. That's just the characteristics of this stage that I'm at. It's kind of a part of the package. And... Um, Nulal Chandra Prabhu has written a really nice series of articles for the Harmonist some years ago. Uh, it was called Maintaining Steady Devotion During Unsteady Practice. So he's talking about the six different stages of um, Anishta Bhajana Kriya, uh, Unsteady Practice. And, uh, and he also talks about moving from, from this stage to the next one, to Nishta or Steadiness and how the characteristics of Klesangni, relief from all distress, and Subhada, auspiciousness, will become progressively more pronounced as the practitioner advances towards Nishta. And especially auspiciousness uh, is mentioned as something that will appear. I found this really interesting, uh, especially uh, looking at the relief from distress. Like I just said, uh, that's, something that I've noticed in my own life as I've devoted more time to my spiritual practice. I always used to fall into this trap of thinking that I didn't have the time and energy to chant because I was so stressed out. And of course, that made me even more stressed out because of instead of sitting down and trying to quiet my mind, that would actually de-stress me. I would run around and fervently try to get things done. The article does also contain a warning, though. 
lingering materialistic mentalities during unsteady devotion foster the sense of being the doer and enjoyer. And this is something that is important to recognize. False thinking that one's personal endeavors in spiritual practice have created auspiciousness. One can easily lose proper understanding regarding the causeless nature of spiritual benedictions. So causeless being the key word here. We should always remember that whatever progress we make is ultimately caused by the mercy of the Vaishnavas. I've been talking a lot about Arjun's fight and our struggles and sort of focusing on the on what we on the effort that we put into our practice. But I really like the example that Guru Maharaj gives of a person getting uh, rescued, getting lifted up from a well with a rope that someone's obviously pulling and someone threw down the well in the first place. Even though that person hangs on to the rope, they're not gonna uh, congratulate themselves when they get up for, for holding the holding on to the rope nicely and in that way getting rescued by their own efforts. In Prabhupada's commentary, he, uh, he mentions uh, a verse from the first canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, fifth chapter, verse 17. If someone gives up their occupational duties and works in Krishna consciousness and then falls down on account of not completing their work, what loss is there on their part? And what can one gain if one performs their material activities perfectly? I really like this point. What can one really gain? Uh, because when you think about it, it's always safe to invest in bhakti. Even if we we were just calculating, we could look at it like this. We can strive here in this life for material or spiritual success. We know for a fact that the material success, money, power, fame, etc., will be taken away from us at death. So it's not going to last. We know that for sure, absolutely. Meanwhile, we can't know for sure. We, we don't have evidence of life after death. Uh, meaning that we have no proof of whether spiritual practice will actually lead to anything, but at least the possibility is there. So logically, it makes more sense to invest in the path that at least has the theoretical possibility of lasting results. Surely the path that will always end with losing your whatever you achieved isn't worth investing in. Vishwana Chakravati Thakur also uh, points out that there are two types of yoga explained in this section of the chap chapter. Activities in bhakti, including hearing, chanting, and other ac such activities, and prescribed duties offered to the Lord without personal desire. Because bhakti alone and no other process is beyond the three modes, a person transcends the modes only by performing bhakti. He also quotes from the Uddhava Gita section of Srimad Bhagavatam, where Krishna says in verse 11, 29, 20, My dear Uddhava, because I have pers personally established it, this process of devotional service unto me 
is transcendental and free from any material motivation. Certainly a devotee never suffers even the slightest loss by adopting this process. And once more, Krishna will confirm this in, in the ninth chapter of the Gita in verse 31. O son of Kunti, I declare it boldly that no devotee is mine, of mine is ever lost. So he's really hammering in this point that, that we won't need to start over from the beginning, even if I, when we hit a bump. This really gives me great solace. Every setback will be a little bit smaller and easier to handle. So instead of the anxiety just piling on, getting worse and worse every year that passes and the bad news keep just getting worse. Uh, I feel confident that as I grow older, I'll feel more and more content if I can just uh, keep up with my practice. Another one of life's problems solved. Moving on to verse 41. Oh, joy of the Kuru dynasty. On this path, one must be resolute in purpose with one's intelligence fixed. Indeed, those who are irresolute are endlessly distracted by other thoughts. So here Guru Maharaj points out that Krishna is talking about the stage of Nista, steadiness, that I just mentioned uh, in connection with Dulat Chandra Prabhu's article, in which one's intelligence is fixed in spiritual pursuit as a result of hearing about God regularly and serving his devotees. So here we're, again, devotees are we're coming back to, to the devotees and our positions as our position as servants of the servant. And many of us currently do find ourselves in the stage of Anishta Bhajana Kriya, unsteady devotional practice. Guru Maharaj has given us uh, the advice to see Nishta steadiness as an interim goal that we should strive for in this life. And I find that really helpful as the higher stages of bhakti seem so distant that it's almost unimaginable that I would one day reach them. But I can kind of imagine myself being in Nishta in my old days, like being a hundred year old little lady getting up very early every morning to, to chant like a million rounds and, and do puja and offer arti to her deities and her students will be eagerly gathering around her to hear her words of wisdom and and of course now we ended up in Pratishta and not Nishta but I'm sure you know what I mean. Nishta is imaginable. The other the higher stages at this point are almost unimaginable. So I think it's it's good practical advice. In the following verses, in verses uh, 42 to 44, Krishna talks about people who are attracted to the flowery words of the Vedas and are full of desire for material opulence and sense enjoyment. This isn't really something we would typically encounter in our life here in the West, or I should maybe say North, thinking of where Finland is in relation to India. But anyhow, I don't really know anyone who would be attached to performing Vedic rituals to attain a good birth in their next life. 
But this made me think of the fairly common phenomenon of people shunning, shunning Gaudiya Vaishnavism because they think it's too weird. You know, the kind of a person who likes spirituality, sort of generally, or who likes yoga, but freaks out when someone points out that yoga might have something to do with, with religion or spirituality, or who doesn't like the idea of submitting oneself to a guru, like the author I mentioned uh, last week uh, that I was interviewed with, uh, who said that the concept of a guru doesn't work here in our society uh, or we know we all know people who who thought that bowing down to a deity was just madness the first time they saw it if these sort of doubts linger on uh, as a person tries to pick up spiritual practice it it might be a symptom of that that the person wants to be normal in terms of what we consider normal in our society today and perhaps that's what krishna is talking about here like people who were normal uh, in those days uh, in that society very different from ours in a different time a little bit of spirituality was okay but the idea of somehow diverging from the norm was too much you know that stepping away from the flowery words of the vedas isn't doesn't that sound like something you would see on instagram like a like a self-love type of a spiritual ish post i personally found find this quite tragic especially if i see some, that someone's attracted to krishna but can't take that crucial step to commit to the path, even after years of kind of circling around devotees. Of course, there can be various reasons behind this uh, psychological trauma or other issues like that. But I think that the need to be normal is a really big one here in Finland, especially. We're taught to keep our head down, not to stand out, not to make a big fuss about ourselves to the extent that I've heard people say that, that they feel that uh, they can't say no if someone's offering them alcohol or meat because they don't want to inconvenience the host. They don't want to create an embarrassing situation. So they feel that they need to you know, consume these things even though they go against their own values just not to make a fuss. Luckily, things like meditation and vegetarianism are becoming mainstream in our society as well. But that never would have happened if some brave souls wouldn't have dared to be weird. So I say that we should embrace our weirdness, like even the weirdest uh, details of our tradition. And while acknowledging that the normal European or Northern American lifestyle is something that's horribly detrimental to the environment and the animals and not to speak of the people who produce the cheap commodities that our whole consumer culture is based on. Kamalaksha always quotes this band uh, and I forgot to ask him which one it is. Normality is insanity, but I always like that. If someone remembers which one it is, you can write it in the chat. 
so in verse 245, Krishna uh, starts to talk about the three gunas, the three modes of nature. The Vedas mainly deal with life within the three, uh, within the jurisdiction of the three gunas. Arjun, you should transcend these gunas, becoming indifferent to material dualities, fixed in truth, free from concerns for acquisition and comfort, and established in the self. Bhakti, of course, is nirguna, above the three modes of nature, sattva, rajas, and tamas, or goodness, passion, and ignorance. They'll be discussed in more detail in chapter 14, where Krishna points out in verse 5 that uh, all the three modes will bind the imperishable yet embodied being to the body itself. Sattva, of course, which can also be described as clarity, balance, and happiness, is the most favorable guna for spiritual practice. And in my experience, trying to live a more sattvic life does create a more conducive environment for activities uh, such as uh, daily regular meditation or cooking your own food and offering it to Krishna and, and studying the scripture. So we kind of have this sort of uh, conflicted relationship with sattva in some ways we learn that we're supposed to transcend it but at the same time we see that it's a it's a useful platform for our practice. Krishna uh, confirms in verse 26 that even sattva must be transcended in order to leave this material world behind. One who serves me exclusively with the yoga of constant devotion, having transcended the gunas, is fit for liberation. So even sattva will bind us to this world with comfort and happiness. Hmm. There's no sense of urgency in our spiritual practice if everything's fine, just it is it just as it is. Gurumarsh often uses the expression of negative impetus, that push that we get from material struggles. Krishna says in chapter 7 of the Gita that four kinds of people approach him, and uh, one of them is people who are suffering. And I've definitely felt that I fall into that category and the difficulties I've had, especially when I was younger, have really fueled my spiritual quest and, and still make me feel like that life uh, before I was a devotee isn't the life that I'd want to go back to. So I can see in a way how too much material happiness could become an impediment. But at the same time, uh, we need to remember that sattva can be helpful. And I would also say that uh, happiness uh, very few people manage to to live for very long in this world without encountering some kind of uh, suffering so it's coming for all of us and uh, that negative impetus i don't think we need to worry about being too happy i think the the suffering will come and the push will will come by itself. It is important to point out that by saying that happiness will bind us to, to the material world, Krishna doesn't mean that we should be unhappy. Uh, Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur quotes uh, 
again from the Uddhava Gita from Sriman Bhagavatam 11th Canto, chapter 25, verse 29. Happiness derived from the self is in the mode of goodness. Happiness based on sense gratification is in the mode of passion. And happiness based on delusion and degradation is in the mode of ignorance. But that happiness found within me is transcendental. So it's going to look at it like this to, to think about these different types of happiness. Some of them are temporary and some are eternal. Some are beneficial and some are actually harmful to us. But Krishna does promise here that this is a path of genuine happiness and there's going to be lots of it too. These days to me, the alleged restrictions of a sattvic life uh, feel more like freedom from trying to imitate trying to enjoy life by imitating others and ending up just embarrassing myself in the process. That's kind of the experience that I had before I became a devotee that I had sort of seen in the media, I guess, how people are supposed to enjoy, how you're supposed to have fun. And I tried to imitate that and, and always ended up really making a fool of myself. The media, of course, is largely funded by corporations and uh, that want to sell us things. And so they, they tell us that sense gratification equals happiness and that any restrictions to your diet or lifestyle are a form of horrible repression that we should liberate ourselves from. But anyone over 40, anyone my age knows that that sort of uh, innocent fun with friends that we were uh, marketing uh, when we were younger easily turns into an addiction. Easily turns into big problems as the years go on. The description of the gunas was one of the things that made a huge impression on me the first time I read the Gita. Uh, I felt that uh, they enabled me to see the world with a clarity of vision that I had never experienced before. I felt like I had kind of been pushed around by the gunas, but being uh, able to analyze them and see them, I, I gained more control of my life. I often say that it's so amazing that how this ancient book, how the Gita can contain so much wisdom that pertains to life in the 21st century. It was actually the 20th century when I read, read it for the first time. But anyhow, any century, the Gita will work. And that to me shows that it talks about something that's really inherent to us, that's sort of coded into our, our very self. We function the same way as the jivas who lived during the times when, uh, when the Gita was spoken. And, and, and of course, that could be explained by the fact that we are the same jivas being eternal. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you or any of the kings. In practical terms, I feel that the description of the gunas gives us uh, these tools that we can use to decide if something is good for us or not. And people talk a lot about self-love and, uh, and I can appreciate the sentiment, but 
but I feel that it's difficult to make sure that we're actually caring for ourselves and in a balanced way without uh, turning it into self-indulgence, kind of where anything goes in the name of, of self-love or self-care. I think that thinking of uh, what I just said about different types of happiness, it's important to pick the types of self-care that are actually beneficial for us. A lot of you probably recognize uh, the post-retreat crash or have experiences of that. When you've spent time at an ashram or at a retreat and everything's just been so easy because you have your whole day planned out for you and everything's centered around spiritual practice. And then you come back home and you have to figure everything out by yourself and you just feel so alone and lost somehow and everything's just bleak and and gray and bland and at that point we might feel the temptation to turn to some kind of happiness or enjoyment that's not going to be supportive for our practice but the, these are kind of the questions that we deal with every day like where to draw the lines between fanaticism and laziness or forced austerity and self-indulgence. But if we look at different activities through the lens of the Gita and analyze which guna they represent, it really helps us figure out whether we should engage them in, in them or not. And the same, of course, goes for people that we spend time with. This is often a bitter pill to swallow we all have people that are close to us, but that we recognize don't really support us in our practice. And these are sort of decisions that we all have to make for ourselves, like uh, who to spend time with and, and how, but, uh, but at least we know for sure that through sadhusanga, we can transcend the gunas. And, so the more sadhusanga we can add into our lives, the better. In verse 47, Krishna continues, you are only eligible to act in terms of your acquired nature as a warrior. You're not entitled to the fruits of your action. You should neither be motivated to act by the hope of enjoying the fruits of your action, nor become attached to not acting at all. This sort of brings us back to the beginning of the chapter where I talked about false renunciation and, and how Arjun sort of in an externally spiritual way talks beautiful words about uh, non-action, inaction, probably inaction. Uh, but he's actually just trying to avoid something unpleasant. So he's still on a completely materialistic plane. Last week I mentioned this uh, nice little book I've been reading by Visaka Prabhu called uh, Harmony and the Bhagavad Gita. And in the book she shares some really hilarious examples of realizations about work without attachment that she's had in her garden. Like you might remember, she talks about moving out to the countryside and trying to at least to some extent to be self-sustainable and growing her own food and so on. And, 
And she had these lovingly planted and watered and tended carrots that she had been taking care of for the entire summer. And they all ended up getting eaten by a bear, except one. The bear kindly left her and her family one carrot. So I always had this suspicion that most people who attempt to grow their own food end up actually burning more calories working in the garden than they will gain from, the, from eating the food they managed to grow. At least I'm confident that that would happen to me, that my only, the only thing I'd get would be like a gigantic zucchini that would have like 30 calories total. Of course, we do also have examples of successful gardening. I've eaten delicious meals at Orarian Maduvan that have been prepared with the ingredients from the from the ashram's garden. And uh, Visaka Prabhu also describes more abundant crops that she managed to grow later on. But from my what I've understood, gardening is always hard work. So better not to be too attached. This also made me think about the long cycling trips that Kamalaksha and I have done over the years. As many of you know, we are. Uh, that's something we like to do in the summers. We ride our bikes and, and um, every day we get on the bikes and put pretty much the same effort into the cycling. Like on a long trip, our longest one being uh, from New York to San Francisco, you can't constantly be pushing yourself. You'll just exhaust yourself during the first week. So you have to kind of accept uh, your own limitations and and deal with that, that there's a certain speed that you can keep up. And then you just pray that you're going fast enough to catch your flight or bus home at the end of the summer. So some days a strong tailwind will carry us forward. And we'll, it, the cycling almost feels like flying. And some days a monstrous headwind will come and slow us down to a crawl and we'll do like half the kilometers we would have done on the, on the day when the wind was blowing in the correct direction. So trying to fight the elements is completely futile. We can only carry on with our work, knowing that the result might just as well be a failure or a success. Now, of course, I could do a whole another talk on on what failure and success really mean in terms of bhakti or cycling or self-publishing comics. But I'm talking strictly now on, on sort of the level of uh, mainstream, of the mainstream idea of success. I know bike travel isn't for everyone, but I would say that it's taught me a lot about my place in the universe as this tiny, fragile, soft blob of flesh that can be smashed into bits at any moment by a passing car. Guru Nishta Prabhu has been giving really interesting classes where he talks about doing these different mental exercises. And one of them was that we would imagine that we have one year left to live. And I have to say that cycling in heavy traffic has really a lot of times been a great reminder of our mortality. And, and even in the days when we're on a 
quiet countryside road. Uh, we still feel really small compared to the forces of nature. Krishna will still elaborate on this theme in verses uh, 48 and 49. And I especially like how in verse 49, he advises Arjuna to take refuge in wisdom. So that's really what I've been talking about this whole time that, that this wisdom contained here in this chapter. It's our solace in moments of despair. It's our guiding light in moments of indecision or friend in moments of loneliness. In verse 51, uh, Krishna says that those established in yogic wisdom, the wise who have renounced the fruits of action and are thus released from the bondage of rebirth, attain that abode that is with, without anxiety. So Guru Maharaj points out uh, that here Krishna is actually answering Arjun's question from way back in verse 7, where Arjun asked what's best for him. So Krishna is overtly speaking about attaining spiritual knowledge of the self, but also hints at bhakti. Knowledge of the soul leads to knowledge of God, as we're particles of God and God is our source. So you can't really separate the two. And this led my thoughts to uh, verse 10, 10, one of the Gita score verses. Tesam satatta yuktanam bajatam priti purvakam dadami budhi yogantam yenamam upayantite. To those who are constantly devoted, who worship me with love, I give the power of discrimination by which they can come to me. And I like how, you know how it's said that chapter two contains all the different uh, topics, all the other chapters of the Gita in the condensed form. And there are many instances where can, we can see that in chapter two, Krishna is sort of uh, alluding to bhakti and, and to these points that, that he'll then uh, elaborate on or, or bring out more openly later on. Like here, he's overtly talking about Dharma and telling Arjun that he has to fight because it's his duty and work without attachment and blah, blah, blah. But we see sort of between the lines that he's taught that it's all about attachment to Krishna. It's all about bhakti. And then later on, of course, Guru Maharaj uh, has pointed out so many of these things in his commentary and that that's really helpful in in seeing how, how everything's connected. So here Gurmarch points out that we can see Krishna promising Arjun that with yogic wisdom, he'll attain, attain the abode, which is without anxiety, indicating not just release from suffering, but also attainment of positive standing in the liberated realm of devotion. So we can see here that Krishna's not just talking about some kind of impersonal, moksha, but uh, abode without anxiety, a joyful place. And then in chapter 10, like I just uh, said, Krishna openly reveals what he means by, by this wisdom and, and abode, that true loving devotion to Krishna, we will come to him, to his realm. So the last verses for today, uh, verses 52 and uh, 53, 
are, when your intellect emerges from the thicket of delusion, you shall become disgusted with all that has been heard and all that is to be heard. Thereafter, when your intellect is fixed and not perplexed by scriptural injunctions, you shall attain yoga samadhi. I have to say that when I reread this now preparing for this class, the first thing that came to my mind was social media. So much that has been heard and all that is to be heard. It's like a never ending you know, thirst that we have for things to be heard. Like, what did they say? And I can't believe they said that. And, you know, let's see what they said then. And, you know, that sort of uh, endless, like, thirst for refreshing the newsfeed to see uh, what more there is to be heard. And, and when you scroll for long enough, you definitely become disgusted. Mm, just like Krishna says here in, in these verses. So I think this proves that Krishna is warning us about the thicket of delusion that is social media. You know, uh, chapter two has the solutions to all of life's problems in the past, present, and the future. So we all know that fixing the intelligence on anything becomes impossible if we constantly surround ourselves by various beeping and blinking devices. And, and it's good to remember, I mean, I use social media, but, but it's good to remind ourselves that enjoyment in Rajaguna is bliss in the beginning, but misery in the end, while enjoyment in Sattvaguna is misery in the beginning, but bliss in the end. And we need to stay completely away from scrolling in Tamaguna, which is misery all the way. So we have one more talk left in this series. And next week, I'm going to talk a lot about the mind. As we know, it can be our closest friend or our greatest enemy. And uh, even though it often feels like it's impossible to control, Krishna will help us in the upcoming verses, recognize a person who has gained control over their mind and who can help us also get to that same stage, to that same state of mind. So we have a few minutes left. If anyone would like to share some thoughts or if you have any questions, comments, anything, feel free to unmute at this point. Yes, I see Omkar has raised the hand. Haribol. Haribol. Thank you for your class. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I had two little points. I, I can really relate with what you said about that last verse of the tickets of delusion on social media. I just took myself out of it. And I think that's brilliant insight. Thank you for that. that that uh, confirms my uh, my uh, resolution to stay away from the Tamaguna scrolling. I was really <laughs> preaching to myself, you know. I'm still there, but thank you. <laughs> and uh, okay, yeah. Um, good luck with the tickets. Um, second point you mentioned about uh, the the symbology of the Gita, and uh, I happen to remember a verse that. I found it's in the purport of Prabhupada's Gita to the verse 34 of sixth chapter. 
And this is like a kind of a common sort of like symbology that I think it's more like on the Advait in school that they draw of the of the Gita being kind of symbology, uh, symbolically to be seen as as kind of like when Arjuna is on the battlefield with with Krishna and the chariot driving, and the 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 horses are the the senses pulling and and kind of like that. But Prabhupada actually quotes; he doesn't give the the source. But he says in the Vedic literatures, it is said, and I skipped this Sanskrit, it's really long, but it translates as the individual is the passenger in the car of the material body and intelligence is the driver. Mind is the driving instrument and senses are the horses. The self is thus the enjoyer or sufferer in the association of the mind and senses. So it is understood by great thinkers. So, I mean, as much as that's kind of kind of bit of a what do you call it a parable at the same time it's it came to my mind that that a lot of people see that the the horses as the senses they're kind of like uh, sort of half uncontrolled in this picture too which is yeah that was that came to my mind i wanted to bring it out because you asked thank you yeah and that kind of leads us nicely to next week's talk uh, and all the things about the mind that that Krishna is going to be going to be bringing out in the second chapter as well. Yeah. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Haribol. Haribol. Um, you mentioned that, that there is no evidence that there is life after death, but Guru Nishta um, recommended this Netflix series <laughs> last Friday called Surviving Death, and we've been watching it now these last few evenings, so we're kind of into it <laughs> at the moment. So there is proof. <laughs> I would say like maybe there is not yeah. proof, but, but there is evidence at least. I mean, like at least things hinting at it. I mean, of course, it's not proven, but still like there's quite a bit of evidence, I would say. Yeah, I'm aware of that that series. Uh, I I watched that episode that uh, dealt with reincarnation sometime last winter when uh, Raghunath Prabhu of the Wisdom of the Sages podcast was super excited about it and recommended it to everyone. But I have to say that maybe my intelligence has been or my mind has been ruined by Kali Yuga, but. I'm enough of a skeptic that that it's I don't still feel like it's proven, you know, even even if it's in a documentary, like those people could be actors. Basically, we don't know if they're real people in the end. But yeah, like I said, maybe I'm just being cynical. It was really impressive, I have to say, those like historical details they had found out about the persons yeah I, I i agree i mean but, but i would say it, it seems like there has been a lot of like research over the like last century that's i mean like there's like evidence and maybe no proof but at least evidence yeah i guess by now that thing's been on netflix for years so if it if the those people were actors and it was all fake someone would have figured mm. it out so maybe I should have more respect. <laughs> there is one brahmachari from Switzerland who had memory of his previous life 
and when he was 15 or 16 he took a bike and he drove he ride for one week to reach the point where he remembered he had died and then he met all his previous family and i trust him in his stories i don't think he's lying <laughs> i also remember reading something about a british devotee who died in a car accident when they were young and then you know just like it says in the gita picked up their practice from where they left off but like i said i have a colonial brain so never mind but thanks for for bringing for making that point can i say a follow-up sure please go ahead so um my nephew remembers his past life and it's a really interesting story because he has nothing to do with any kind of spirituality my sister and her ex-husband are totally uninterested in spiritual things and uh he when he was like when he was able to speak from the time he was able to speak he started saying that i was somehow related like i was his mother in his previous life and he's hardly seen me because i've lived in the u.s for so long he was born when I moved to the U.S. And so um, he kept saying these same things over and over again for years. And uh, then my sister, well, she didn't take it very seriously at first, but then she went online when he was like nine or 10 or something. And uh, she started playing these different languages to him to try to figure out where he's from. And then the kid said like all these like, you know, different cultures, well, he said, no, no, no. And they, they had no idea that my spiritual path comes from Bengal. But then the, they came to Bangla and the kid was like, yeah, this, that's it. Okay. And, so, and they knew nothing about it. And then he remembered the couple first like uh, letters of the, the village that he was from. We were like, like fishermen, according to him or something like that. I was a, the wife who was like making mats or something like that, which is not very, you know, prestigious for my, you know, I, of course I wanted to be a Brahmin in a big temple or something. Anyway. So then he remembered the first two or three letters of the, the town he lived in. And so I checked it out and there's a ton of these like these villages in West Bengal or somewhere in like southern or kind of like southern um, eastern part of India that are by the sea and they start with those three three same letters. So that's one thing that there's some kind of like vague evidence but then of course that Ian Stevenson who was the the professor for the I think the West Virginia University he's uh, like charted thousands of cases in the 50s 60s and 70s of these like kids especially in India that say that they remember their past lives and he actually followed through and, and looked for the evidence and he found like so much evidence that it's like undisputable and it's through this complete indisputable and it's completely the whole thing has been done with this like scientific rigor and it's through this respectable university in the US so it's not any quack thing so even if you don't believe in it I feel like if there's that much like hard data that kind of shows a certain direction then why is it that like science is not studying it seriously 
Mm, that is a good question. But I mean, there are so many things that should be studied, but aren't because they don't fit the worldview. Like, right. you know, degrowth economics. And I mean, yeah. so many things that, that are being neglected because, yeah, they're not within the framework of, but okay, I stand corrected. <laughs> Thank you. I believe you. Thank you. Anyone else want to share proof of reincarnation? If not, thank you. It's been wonderful once again to, uh, to spend time with you and, and see you again next week, I hope. Shrisi Gurugorangaki, Jai. Srimati Krishangi Devi Dasiki. Jai.